you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Hello, good friends. On this Friday, April 28, welcome to the Bill Press Pod and this week's Reporters Roundtable. Coming at the end of the week where news about the news dominated the news. Fox superstar Tucker Carlson, number one in cable television ratings, was suddenly fired by Fox News. Don Lemon, once the evening superstar for CNN, was fired six months after he was moved to their new morning show. And in a New York courtroom, columnist Gene Carroll told a jury in great detail about allegedly being raped by Donald Trump in a Bergdorf, Bergdorf Goodman dressing room. Meanwhile, Mike Pence testified before a DOJ grand jury about his conversations with Donald Trump leading up to January 6. Kevin McCarthy barely squeezed out enough votes in the House to pass a GOP plan to raise the debt ceiling in return for massive spending cuts. And oh, by the way, President Biden announced he's running for re-election in 2024. Yeah, lots of good stuff for today's five-star panel to dig into, so... Let's say hello to Hunter Walker, investigative reporter for Talking Points Memo. Hi, Hunter. Hey, guys. How are you? Great. Thank you. Alan Smith, political reporter for NBC News. Hi, Alan. Great to be on, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Alex Rorty, White House correspondent for McClatchy Newspapers. Hello, Alex. Bill, thank you for having me back on. So uh, I know all the uh, ink and all the uh, airtime on radio and television was all about Tucker Carlson this week, but let me suggest there may be a more important story. Uh, Alex, let me start with you and a little video that was put out by the White House very quietly. Here's a little clip. As the sun rises, we raise the flag, a symbol of all that we hold most dear as Americans. Courage opportunity, democracy, freedom. They're the values and beliefs that built this country and still beat in our hearts. But they're under attack by an extreme movement that seeks to overturn elections, ban books, and eliminate a woman's right to choose. Joe Biden has made defending our basic freedoms the cause of his presidency. So, Alex, um, I was covering the White House in 2012 when Barack Obama announced for re-election Hunter, you might have been there too. I don't know, but I, I remember I was on the press plane and we did we flew out to Ohio State and then we went down to Virginia somewhere and bounced somewhere else and it was a great big tour uh, to announce his reelection plans. This was <laughs> like just the exact opposite. Why? <laughs> Why <laughs> was it? Why? Well, planned that way i guess for what? I, I was gonna say if, if you're listening to this and you missed that biden uh declared re-election and you're on you're, you're trying to understand how that happened don't, forgive yourself because um you know this this was um the white house did not do a whole lot to promote this um they no. released a, vi- a video and then they did absolutely nothing else um it was as if the president had a, a normal schedule through this week and, and I think the strategy here and the signal here is is, is pretty clear. Um, you know, they they want to start raising money. They want to make it clear that he's running re-election since, you know, behind the scenes, there was a little back and forth um, about whether that was going to happen. But ultimately, what they really like people to focus on right now is how Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis are yelling at each other. Uh-huh. Or they want to they want or about how Republicans and state legislatures are trying to push even greater restrictions on on abortion. They're content, I think, to, to simply step back, let Republicans uh, fight amongst themselves in the Republican primary, let them pass legislation that the White House thinks is going to be a political liability next year. And 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 they're happy to, to otherwise be quiet um, and keep the spotlight on that. And so it was a very unusual um, process that we saw. I mean, you noted the contrast with Barack Obama, 
you know, and it comes after there was, you know, months of, of quasi hand wringing, I guess I would describe it as, is whether or not uh, Biden would, would run for reelection and when he would declare. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of conversation about that in Washington. I don't think there was probably conversation about it anywhere else. But in Washington, there was a conversation. So now they have put those questions to bed. They can move ahead. And again, what they're hoping is that they can just sit back and watch Republicans beat themselves up for the next, oh, you know, 12 months. Yeah. So, Alan, I was going to ask that question. Uh, is this, do you think, Alan, uh, a reflection of what the campaign is going to be uh, like going down the road? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think the clip you played was pretty prescient in that, uh, you know, this was actually the campaign that Josh Shapiro ran in Pennsylvania against Doug Mastriano. It was the Protect Your Freedoms campaign. He was the Democrat last year that won by the most. And, uh, you know, this is a guy who uh, aligned himself closely with President Biden. So I wouldn't be surprised to see Biden and his team try to take that campaign national. I mean, obviously, the Republican Party is still focused very much on the same issues. Abortion is a big deal. If former President Trump is the nominee of the Republican Party, and it's looking increasingly likely he will be, then you're going to have democracy at the top of the ballot, too. So you're going to see a very similar campaign that that what we saw in key swing states in 2022. Uh, and it was really the uh, message of freedom coming from Democrats, which is really taking uh, a, a Republican talking point uh, and kind of turning it on its head. You know, Hunter, it reminded me almost a replay of Ronald Reagan's reelection, Morning in America, a video raising the flag. That's how it started out, very upbeat. Um, and it looks like that's Biden's message, right? We're on track. As he said, we've got to finish the job. Yes, but, you know, at the same time, this is very traditional. It, it also really isn't. You know, he's talking about... Um, fighting an extremist movement that wants to overturn elections and ban books. Uh, Meanwhile, on the other side, I I just wrote about this yesterday, Trump released his first sort of big web video after the Biden announcement. And, you know, he's talking about this as, you know, a country in decline where people want to tell you that a man is a woman and a woman is a man where, you know, we're under the threat of nuclear annihilation and the global elites from the World Economic (laughs) Forum are corrupting things. And he ended with a slightly modified version of his original slogan. He's saying, make America great for us again. Um, And also Uh, saying, you know, that he is focused on the quote unquote true owners of this great land. So we're seeing a campaign where I think, you know, Obviously, people would have very different views about which side is extreme and how. But there's no question that objectively both have ratcheted up rhetoric very high. And I don't think we've seen campaigns, you know, in the pre-Trump past that were so much about, you know, questioning basic values of the country. I mean, this is an Mm -hmm. existential extreme fight where, you know, people are saying your very way of life is under threat on both sides of the coin. So just a, 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 an inside baseball question. Um, uh, Alex, the new campaign manager, or Biden's campaign manager was also announced, Julia Chavez Rodriguez. I don't know her. Do you know her? What's, what's her job been at the White House? What can you tell us about his new team? Well, um, she was a, a senior advisor to the, the president, um, you know, she was not a, a central figure on his last campaign in 2020. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I don't I don't know her personally, but, um, you know, the the campaign manager is, you know, it's a job about making sure that the trains uh, run on time. Right. This is a president who has a senior staff that um, has been in place for a long time. Um you know, whether it's Mike Donilon or, or others, um, you know, and this is the central brain trust that makes, you know, a lot of key strategic decisions. But you, when you run a national campaign, um, you know, there's everything, you know, don't forget, this is still a candidate who has to make sure that he gets on the ballot in every state, right? This is, you still have yeah. a lot of deadlines, yeah. a lot of paperwork that you have to do like that. And that's the, the, the key um, you know, for a campaign manager to make sure that a lot of those decisions, a lot of those processes run smoothly, even while, uh, you know, the Anita Duns of the world are still, um, 
you know, making plotting the the broad re-election strategy and really figuring out, you know, the message like you we've just been talking about, you know, this freedom centric message that I think is really going to be fascinating um, and is one uh, that that not just the president but Democrats are going to push forward, especially with an eye on, you know, the repeal of of Roe v. Wade um, and the Dobbs decision last year. Um, I think really making that a centerpiece a lot of their campaigns and arguing that Republicans along with other issues, want to, want to try to control your lives um, mm-hmm. through that. You know, those are, that, that's going to be the, the, the key uh, message going forward. And, you know, I mean, this is, again, this is a president who has had a group of senior advisors, um, you know, close to him for, for decades at this right. point, you can, you right. can throw in Ron Klain and, and that, um, and that category, even though he's not chief of staff, I'm guessing he's going to be, involved either formally or certainly informally with the the campaign yeah. regardless um and and you know this is, they're 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 hatching the re-election strategy now plus steve Rachetti and anita dunn those people who've been around right. him for a long time right. mike donnellan so you've all alluded to uh of course the trump campaign up and running already um i was struck this week that so by my count donald trump is in some legal jeopardy on five different fronts New York City, New York State, Department of Justice, State of Georgia, uh, the Gene Carroll case. And 63% of Republicans this week said that they still would like Donald Trump to be the nominee for the party, even if he is found guilty in any of those charges. So, Alan, uh, Donald Trump, 2024, inevitable? It's starting to feel more and more that way. Uh, I, I find it interesting. You know, there's there's such a contrast between uh, the polling that shows really overwhelmingly uh, Republicans want Donald Trump to be their nominee, at least right now in 2024. Uh, you you talk to people at, at conservative events on the trail and, you know, people mention we need someone who can win. You know, I'm worried about being able to win next year. We have to be able to beat Joe Biden. Um, we've we've got to be able to pick someone who can get across the finish line. And then, you know, it's still kind of a rallying back to Trump, who's already lost right in 2020. Uh, many of his closely aligned candidates lost last year. 2018 was a, a terrible year for the Republican Party. So you got three straight elections of losing with a former president at the top of the ticket, really. Um, and yet, even though Republican voters are thinking about we, we, we really have to win, winning is important. This is what all of his rivals are also talking about. You know, uh, sure, we agree with him policy wise, but but winning is a necessity. And the, the clear subtext is that he can't provide it. People really aren't budging off of him yet. Uh, <laughs> Hunter, how do you add that up? I mean, Trump has lost for the Republicans three times in a row, as Alan just pointed out, 2018, 2020, 2022. And now they say, well, we really got to win, so we need a winner. Let's go back to Donald Trump. Well, let's be clear about something. There's there's a substantial number of Republicans who don't think he lost at all, right? <laughs> Thank I you. Mean, yeah, you know, right. part of the Trump playbook and to an extent it is working for him, is, you know, to question, uh, to work the refs, if you will, and question, you know, the fairness um, and even corruption in, in, you know, the basic entities of our government. Uh, We all know he questioned the 2020 election. The courts are against him. You know, Alan Bragg, the DA in Manhattan, is bought off by George Soros. Um, you know, and as I was saying, his election campaign message is this stuff that experts have said really like touches on racial and anti-Semitic dog whistles, where he's saying, you know, George Soros, the World Economic Forum Global Reset, and the elites are against you. And I mean, I think his his bio on Truth Social, his social network right now, is something like, they're all against you, you know, and they're trying to take me down because I'm standing up for you. That's the message. Um, So that message has a built-in allowance for people to question or disregard any failure that he might have. There is no objective failure for Donald Trump if you're in the hardcore base. So, Alex, who, we know who some of the announced candidates or potential candidates are, who could possibly 
stop Donald Trump. Well, I mean, you know, um, the leading alternative has been and continues to be uh, Ron DeSantis, uh, the, the Florida Republican governor, um, you know, but um, he, he's been put in an awkward position. Right. I mean, a few months ago, if you looked at some of the polling, even head to head polling, he talked Donald Trump in some individual states. Um, that's been been less the case lately. Um, and, and again, you know, Donald Trump was was indicted. Um, you would think just common sense that that might hurt him in a political context, but not in this Republican primary. And you had this yeah. incredibly awkward situation where Ron DeSantis and other alternatives um, like Nikki Haley, uh, the former South Carolina governor who is running uh, who's a candidate in this race, you know, had to rush to defend it. Um, you know, this is Donald Trump has. How do I put this? He has retweeted people on Truth Social, you know, raising questions about, you know, completely baselessly without evidence um, about, you know, sexual impropriety that that Ron DeSantis, uh, you know, he's accusing Ron DeSantis of in his past. Again, completely without evidence, completely baseless. But he's already launched those kinds of attacks. And yet here's Ron DeSantis rushing to his defense um, and, and against yeah. the indictment, taking time out of, you know, he's on a nationwide book tour. He's taking time out of, of that speech um, to make it clear to everyone that he thinks the the charges, the indictment, um, you know, is is bunk and completely baseless. Um, you know, and 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 you've seen even some of the tension with Ron DeSantis's response because when he was initially addressed this, he made some kind of reference to, well, you know, I don't know anything about hush money payments to a porn star, right? Yeah. Um, kind of a wink, wink. I'm the candidate. I don't have any of that in, in my past. You don't have to worry about that with me. You know, it, it's something that I think got a lot of backlash uh, from, mm -hmm. from MAGA world. And when the, the indictment was formally unveiled a week later, all reference to hush money payments were, was, was gone from Ron DeSantis's response. It was conspicuous. Uh, not the first time that he's had to clean up an initial response uh, to, to a major issue in this race. Uh, again, he's not even yet a candidate. Um, but, you know, look, DeSantis remains far and away the strongest alternative to Trump. But the, uh, you know, some of the shine has come off over the last couple of months. And we're going to have to wait and see over the, the summer when Ron DeSantis gets into this race, probably next month, um, whether or not he could regain any of that momentum. Well, Alan, clearly, Trump sees Ron DeSantis at this point, uh, as his greatest challenge, and he can't stop talking about <laughs> Ron DeSantis. Here he is uh, again this week. He was running against a man that was way up in the polls, leading by a massive amount. That election was over. When I endorsed him, the election was over in Ron's favor. I mean, it, it was Ron was getting ready to quit. So I don't know. I, I'm very disappointed in him because I'm a, a loyal person, maybe to a fault. I'm a loyal person. Uh, now, of course, <laughs> there are a lot of people who could question <laughs> Donald Trump's loyalty, uh, right? But it does show he's really obsessed with DeSantis's challenge. I mean, yes, he he's nonstop really hitting DeSantis right now. Nobody else comes close to DeSantis in the polls, uh, you know, as, as the second person behind Trump right now. If that changes, it would not surprise me to see uh, Trump begin to deploy a similar playbook against them. Um, it's just really interesting to see, number one, uh, how just like 2016, so much of the Republican field is afraid to hit Donald Trump. Uh, people are not yep. critical of him really at all right now. Um, but all of these contenders, it, it's not just Trump. You know, you saw Nikki Haley this week. Uh, others are not afraid to go after Ron DeSantis. It's, it's completely fine, open season to go after him. But Trump is still completely taboo. The second part. Oh being that Trump has now uh, essentially said Florida is a, ho uh, a horrible place to live. Terrible. It's failing in every <laughs> respect. It ranks at the bottom of the list for everything. And Republicans just spent two years saying, you know, this is the state that is the model for the future of the Republican Party. It's turning redder and redder and redder. This is our success story. And now Trump is essentially saying, Florida, you, you're, you're terrible. He's saying the exact same stuff about Florida that he was saying about New York when he lived there. And oh, by the way, Florida is the place that Donald Trump moved to to leave New York, the last place he lived, where he said that was terrible. 
it is fun to watch, i got to say. All right, Hunter, let's come back to the District of Columbia. Yesterday, um, Mike Pence, seven hours in front of the grand jury that Jack Smith, that investigation he's leading into the events leading up to January 6th and Donald Trump's potential criminal activity. Uh, this is a big coup for Jack Smith and uh, not so good for Donald Trump. Would you agree that Pence is the key witness that they were hoping for? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think the biggest thing here is when it's come to all of the various January 6th investigations, we've seen, you know, Trump and, and you know, top officials from his administration resist subpoenas uh, on grounds of executive privilege. Yeah. And, you know, Mike Pence is no exception to that. Um, and what happened here is his efforts to, you know, shield his testimony were largely denied. Uh, you know, he ruled, you know, that he had protections in his role as president of the Senate. Um, they also made the executive privilege argument. And Smith still got quite a lot of testimony. Uh, and I think that's significant because, you know, let's look at what we know about January 6th already. It is already so clear you know, that there was this coordinated effort to overturn the election. Um, it was part of a strategy that included planning events where they knew, you know, uh, dangerous and violent extremists would be present. Uh, it included a coordinated push on Capitol Hill in the states with these fake electors. So we already know all of this. And that's despite the fact they've been trying to shield a lot of information. So it seems like Jack Smith's finally getting at the stuff we haven't seen. And based on what we have, I imagine it's quite incriminating. What do you think, um, uh, Alex? Is this, um, this is a sign that the DOJ is getting close to wrapping up and making some decisions about possible indictments? Well, I, you know, it's it's... It's hard to say uh, from the outside, of course, but uh, given the, the number of delays um, that the, the vice president, you know, had in, in his testimony, you would think that this would have to be closer to the, the, the end of the process than the beginning of the process, right? And, and I think, you know, just take a step back in the political process because, we, we, look, we were just talking about how Trump's in, indictment in Manhattan um, helped him politically. You know, there is a little bit of a lingering question if, you know, okay, sure, he's indicted in, Man in Manhattan. The Republicans rush to defend him. What happens if he's indicted again? And and what happens if he's indicted again after that? And, and yeah. again after that? Again, this is an actual possibility um, with with the former president. Um, you know, to play out before and even during the Republican presidential primary and, and the, the subsequent general election. Um, and I think that's that's a real question. Does it become too much weight for him, even with some Republican voters or do some Republican voters, I think maybe more likely disagree with the substance of the charges, but decide, you know, it, it ultimately becomes too much baggage in, in a general election. I, I don't know that that's likely. I, I think it's probably not how Republican voters see it. Um, but it, it, we are in this extraordinary situation and there's not a lot of precedent. I mean, there's not a lot of precedent with Donald Trump, generally speaking, um, when, it, when it comes to, to his uh, political campaigns. But in this particular situation, it's, it's also true. We don't know how voters are going to respond to all of these charges. Um, and, and, you know, and, and it's not just about the Republican primary, too. You have to start to take a look at the general election um, as well. And I think it's a lot less clear um, and in fact, I think there is some evidence that it's it's not helpful to, to Donald Trump in a, in a general election. Um, you know, again, it's it's an extraordinary situation and it's 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 really hard to find any sort of historical precedent for any of this. All right. Uh, a lot more news to get to that we uh, haven't had a chance to yet. Uh, so let's take a quick break here on the Bill Press pod and we'll be back with today's panel. Hunter Walker from Talking Points Memo. Memo. Alan Smith from NBC News and Alex Rorty from McClatchy Newspapers. And today's roundtable on the Bill Press Pod is brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, great men and women of the Teamsters Union. It's America's largest uh, labor union and the most diverse, over one and a half million members under new president Sean O'Brien. 
Teamsters representing every aspect of the uh, American labor force. As they say, everybody from we represent everybody from A to Z, from airline pilots to zookeepers. So we salute the members of the Teamsters Union, thank them for their great work of rebuilding America, and thank them especially for their support, longtime support, of the Bill Press Pod. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. And we're back on today's Bill Press Pod and today's roundtable, our political roundtable, Alex Rorty joining us from the White House, where he uh, covers the White House for McClatchy newspapers, Alan Smith covering politics nationwide for NBC News, Hunter Walker, investigative reporter for Talking Points Memo. All right, Hunter, New York is your territory. Uh, let's start with this Gene Carroll trial. Um It's just amazing to me that of all the women who've accused Donald Trump of sexual assault, she's the one who has really persisted and carried it through. And she's now in the courtroom, has been there for two days. Um, From what we've seen, uh, Hunter, searing testimony uh, about an event that she alleges happened back in 1995, 1996 at Bergdorf Goodman. Um, So far, how do you read it? Yeah, I mean, it was a really contentious uh, first day in court. Uh, I was, you know, reading accounts from people who were in the room and, you know, Trump's lawyer, Joe Tacopina, um, who's also uh, representing him in the Manhattan DA's matter, uh, said good morning to her. And she just responded with a stony silence. Um, At one point, he was questioning her on why she didn't scream. When they were in that store, she apparently got as loud as she did at any point um, during her testimony and said, I'm not a screamer, you know, very forcefully. So it was an emotional uh, and angry appearance from her. Uh, but that kind of questioning from Takapina is, I think, you know, basically what we're going to be looking at here. They are questioning her credibility. They're asking whether she, you know, did this to sell a book. She did write one that dealt with the experience. Uh, They're hitting her very hard because, you know, she is not um, able to recall a month or year uh, precisely that this incident occurred. Uh, They're also hitting her for not having written it down in a journal uh, or having told a psychiatrist or other medical professional. At the same time, she did tell multiple friends. uh, Two of those women will be testifying. So as Joe Takapina questions E. Jean Carroll's credibility, he's also going to have to question two other women. Um, So, you know, this is sort of the dynamics that we've seen in some of these Me Too incidents. And that's fundamentally what this is here. Uh, It is also, I should point out, a civil matter. Um, So there's no criminal liability for the president, unlike, you know, some of these other cases, the former president um, that he's caught up in. But, you know, I think the fact of the matter is we are seeing a former president accused of rape. 
by, in effect, multiple women um, in a court setting. Um, and certainly, you know, it's already unprecedented and it would be a massive thing if, you know, she's able to win some type of judgment, um, you know, and obtain some measure of accountability for these allegations. Uh, Hunter, do we expect Donald Trump to testify? It's possible. It, it is possible. Um, and, you know, again, particularly as we were saying, we're in the middle of a re-election campaign and, you know, you have the president dealing with this uh, investigation in Georgia, the Manhattan investigation with Alvin Bragg, the Jack Smith investigation, and this, I mean, you know, and as I was saying, Trump is trying to sort of use um, all of this legal peril as an argument for his campaign. But, you know, it's just simply extraordinary. We're seeing him hit the campaign trail at the same time that he's like hitting the witness stand. Uh, yeah, Alan, uh, how, how, how do you add that up, right? I mean, we've talked now about Georgia, about New York State, about Alvin Bragg and New York City, about Jack Smith, and now about Gene Carroll. I mean, there's no doubt Trump is in serious legal trouble on many fronts. Yeah, there's there's no doubt. And by the end of this summer, there's going to be a lot more clarity in terms of what exactly the former president is, is facing as Iowa and as New Hampshire near. Um, but the, the Gene Carroll case specifically, I mean, if... If he were to lose that case, you know, you're going to see all of his opponents, uh, not necessarily in the Republican primary, but if he were to make it to the general, I mean, people are going to be saying that the former president is a convicted rapist. That That's mm -hmm. not going to be something that is helpful to him whatsoever in a general election, uh, nor is is really any of any of the other stuff that we're, we're talking about right here. Um, but. You know, right right now, it does seem to be pretty helpful for him in the Republican primary because ever since the indictment came out in Manhattan, you've seen this solidifying around him and this inability for anyone who's challenging him to, to kind of break through and deliver a message of, hey, this guy's facing serious criminal and legal liability. We, we, we need to go in a different direction. We can go in a different direction with somebody who's going to try to do similar things. Sure. But but this this person is setting us up for uh, another year of falling short in November. But nobody has effectively sent that message, and, and Trump has only solidified his standing. Yeah, it's hard to believe that we will not get to that point at some time when leading Republicans just say, okay, uh, enough's enough. We've got to move in a different direction. We will see. And meanwhile, the blockbuster announcement on Monday morning, uh, Alex, it came from Harris Faulkner, who... Uh, made the announcement on Fox News. We have some news from within our Fox family. Fox News Media and Tucker Carlson have mutually agreed to part ways. Tucker's last show was this past Friday. Whoa. <laughs> Pretty cold announcement <laughs> for their leading uh, primetime uh, talk show host. Uh, not a good week for the media, uh, I guess, Alex, right? We had Tucker Carlson, Don Lemon, Massive firings at Vice, lost Jerry Springer. Uh, so, right. um, <laughs> well, it's, yeah. it's, yeah, I mean, I, you know, look, obviously, uh, Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon News grabbed the headlines, um, and, and rightfully so. Um, I think for a lot of us, you know, in, in journalism, um, the, the, the near elimination, um, or the, the elimination, uh, the firings at Vice. Um, you know, we're, we're really tough to see. That's a news operation that's done a lot of great work yep. over the yep. years. Um, you know, at 538, most, seemingly most of their staff uh, were also laid off as part of a broader set of cuts um, at Disney and, and ESPN and ABC News. Um, you know, there's we are not in a recession as a country, but it can feel like we're certainly in a media recession right now. It's just been, you know, one cut after another. Uh, one round of layoffs after another um, here at, uh, in, in, in the media business. And it's, it's, it's tough, right? Because it's not like the last uh, 10 or 15 years have been smooth sailing uh, before that, you know? And so 
Um, it, it's 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 a difficult uh, a difficult time. Everyone, you know, it's the the same problems that people have heard about for years now. It's just about trying to find a, a sustainable business model, both for legacy media, but also these new media properties like Five Thirty Eight or like Vice. Uh, trying to to find their way, no one can quite figure it out right now. Um, you know, and it's 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 a tough time. You know, uh, it's hard not to point out. Uh, you know, one Tucker Carlson salary uh, could pay for an awful lot of digital journalist salaries, and and the same goes for Don Lemon. Uh, I'm sure, um, but yeah, it's um it's it's a tough time, Bill, and uh, it does. <laughs> does make me appreciative of, of, of still having a job in this in this business well and uh, hunter we've seen before i mean i remember when bill o'reilly was king of the world right when glenn beck was king of the world and and tucker carlson here well those two left and fox survived fox survives without tucker carlson believe it or not right yeah i mean i think you don't you don't bet against fox um as as you were pointing out they've seen a lot of departures um, and that primetime time slot has remained number one in cable. So, you know, I think Fox's positioning is has proved to be bigger than any one of its stars. And, you know, the main takeaway from watching these first uh, three decades of Fox has been that the model of, you know, conservative news uh does well in primetime. There are people who want to see that. Uh, that. That's true also for, you know, um, more liberal partisan news, but clearly not to the same degree. Um, you know, CNN and MSNBC, when they've leaned more in a partisan direction, have done better than when they haven't, but they've remained, you know, distantly behind Fox. So I think Fox can survive this. Um, but I think, you know, what we've been alluding to is this is, this is, a larger moment of fracturing and change in the media. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing on cable, you know, people like Bill O'Reilly, people like Glenn Beck, you know, move to digital platforms. We're seeing more competitors like uh, OAN and Newsmax. Uh, we're seeing the web media break up. We're seeing massive change at social media companies. And for me, and not to get up on a bit of a soapbox here, but I was, I was tweeting uh, well, about you, last you, night. You've, you worked, know, you've worked for so many different <laughs> news organizations. Yeah, I've worked for major corporate yeah. news organizations. I worked for Business Insider, which had these layoffs. Um, I've worked in Hollywood as a trade reporter. I've worked as a media reporter. I've watched this for years. And, uh, you know, I think the point that we're in a media recession, um, you know, which always sort of precedes and is exacerbated by larger economic issues is very true. And it's ridiculous because the bottom line is, you know, people want content and there is a market for ads. The problem is, particularly in the age of the internet, executives have had trouble figuring out how to make it work. Uh, and as we were talking about, you know, one salary for someone like Tucker could pay for a lot of actual reporters and content producers. And the same is true for the executives and middle management that bloat a ton of these corporations. And, you know, we keep seeing layoffs and accountability happen at the level of people who are actually producing. And it's so backwards compared to any other industry. I mean, you know, on Wall Street, the rainmakers, the people who actually touch the deals are very well regarded. And yet, you know, in journalism, the people who are actually generating the content and actually generating the clicks are making less than the executives who've continually bet long on the internet <laughs> yeah. at every turn and just kind of yeah. play musical chairs and, you know, get yeah. jobs again and again, you know, despite records of failure. I mean, one of the big editors at Vice, one of the big, you know, uh, thought leaders at Vice was a guy named Jesse Angelo, who was my boss when he presided over a completely failed iPad newspaper. And this shuffle <laughs> just continues and it's not working because the same people are making the same poor decisions. Well, uh, you you were on your soapbox, but points well made and well taken. Thank <laughs> you. I'm, I'm very grateful to be at an independent <laughs> outlet like TPN that is TPM that is somewhat inured from this corporate stuff because I've had it. Yeah. Man. Uh, uh, Alan, just one final touch on this: uh, the political side of it. Uh, uh, there may be books written about the relationship between Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump. Tucker Carlson, who said privately, "I passionately hate the man." And yet, here's what Donald Trump had to say about Tucker's departure this week. 
Well, I'm shocked. I'm surprised. Uh, he's a very good person, a very good man, and very talented, as you know, and he had very high ratings. So I think Tucker's been uh, terrific. He's been, especially over the last year or so, he's been terrific to me. And that's what really matters, right? He's been terrific to me. <laughs> I mean, this uh, Tucker's departure, and and you know, you you've seen competing takes on this, but it, it's really going to put to the test uh, what's more valuable, right? Is it Tucker Carlson's program or is it simply being on the 8 p.m. hour on Fox? Uh, so much of that audience is still going to be tuned in. There might be a, a slight portion that that backs away, um, but it's not going to be something that completely changes the dynamic. Uh, now, what what made Tucker, at least in Republican circles, uh, somewhat uh, different is that he would at times, you know, put out something critical on uh, one of these lawmakers, and it would be like a five alarm fire for them. Um, yeah, he would right. highlight an issue, you know. And and I've heard from from staffers who who have worked uh, in some of these offices that you know he he highlights something, and then their phone starts ringing off the hook from Tucker viewers who are like, "What are you doing about this?" Uh, yeah, that dynamic. Yeah. I I don't know if it's easily replicable with whoever uh, ends up taking over that slot behind him. Uh, but I mean, it's certainly a big change as we're, we're gearing up into 2024. And Tucker had a really big ability to kind of shape the issues that Republicans and, and kind of hardline conservatives were talking about that were driving a lot of these primary races. So it's going to be so interesting to see, you know, how this ecosystem changes, like what is the pipeline now? Uh, and it's it's definitely a huge hit for the hard right, mm-hmm. because Tucker Carlson was their guy in primetime reaching, you know, yep. so many, uh, you know, millions every week. And that's just completely cut off. And these 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 issues are now going to be more relegated to, you know, the the Steve Bannon podcast online or other you know websites or whatnot. But it, it's not going to be just constantly brought in front of, you know, the, the, the yeah. biggest audience Fox gets every night. Um, and I'm just going to bounce off something from earlier. You know, we're talking about the media landscape right now. Uh, it really seems like digital media is, is hollowing out. I know a lot of us, uh, we started our careers, made our careers up in digital media. I don't think we would be able to do the same today as when we had first started. Um, and I think you look at the whole media landscape, right? There's, there's turmoil right now at CNN and at Fox and at NBC, you've got digital media hollowing out. Social media sites, I mean, Facebook made a terrible bet on Meta. Twitter is uh, kind of a disaster right now. TikTok is on the verge of widespread bans. And it's completely unclear what the next big thing is on the internet. So we're just in such a period of uncertainty, and it's just really unclear what's coming next. Okay, before we wrap uh, with your favorite stories of the week, just one quick note, Um, Alex, to you, covering the White House, We've seen a lot of state dinners over the year. I don't think we've seen anyone at the state dinner like this week's state dinner. Not sure you were there covering it or not. When President Yoon from South Korea was invited up to the stage by President Biden, uh, and he ends up uh, he <laughs> breaking into song with his favorite song that he grew up with. Uh, here's President Yoon. It was his version of American Pie. Long, long time ago, I can still remember how the music used to make me smile. That was quite a night, Alex. He knew all the words. He went all the way through the Marine Band accompanying him and uh, standing ovation. Right? Who knew? He he has a lovely singing voice. I think we can we could all agree. Um, it was just. Sorry that uh, President Biden didn't decide to, to join him. <laughs> he, he looked like a man who knew who knew better. Than, than You're right. I think that was a good decision on his part. Of course, he gave uh, the president a guitar signed by Don McLean. And I saw this morning that now McLean has invited President Yoon to record a duet of American Pie with him. So <laughs> this could be... I, I, we all look forward to, to downloading that uh, <laughs> okay. after it comes out. All right. As I mentioned, thank you so much, panelists. A great look at uh, uh, as much as we could cover of the news of the week um, from uh, Hunter Walker at Talking Points Memo, Alan Smith from NBC News, Alex Rorty from McC- McClatchy Newspapers. But before we let you go into the weekend, 
of all the stories that you were covering or not covering, uh, one thing always catches your attention, particularly makes you stop in your tracks. We call it our favorite story of the week. Uh, Alan Smith, where'd you, uh, what caught your attention particularly? You know, I'm not going to give away too many spoilers. Um, I, okay. I, I, I want to suggest that folks read uh, Alex Seitzwald's story on NBCnews.com. You know, not, not to give too big of a plug uh, to my yeah, own site, but right. he wrote on something that a lot of folks had not been thinking about. And it is that in New Hampshire, because of the DNC rule changes and President uh, uh, Joe Biden not necessarily strongly contesting it, uh, the state not going along with uh, the primary calendar that the DNC is now uh, solidified. Yeah. There's a really good chance that someone like Marianne Williamson or RFK Jr. could actually win the New Hampshire primary. Um, that you know, it, it would it would take a write-in campaign essentially for for Joe Biden to win, which he he very much still could. Um, but the door is open for one of these challengers to win, and you can only imagine the kind of coverage uh, that's that's going to happen once one of the first states votes and the winner is somebody in the Democratic primary other than Joe Biden. That I saw that story. It's a fascinating story. Uh, and of course, Alex Seitzwald is one of our regulars here on the Bill Press Pod and the Roundtable. So we salute Alex for that good story. Uh, Alex, how about uh, another Alex? Alex Rorty, <laughs> your favorite. <laughs> well, and, I'll, and I'll transition to a, yet another National Journal alum, uh, in addition to Alex Seitzwald, uh, Ben Terrace. Uh, it wasn't, yep. I guess, technically a story. It was an excerpt from his forthcoming book about Sean McElwee. Um, who was uh, a very notable progressive Democratic pollster. Um, Ben's, Ben's book really takes him in on how he had gotten very deep into betting on, on politics um, and betting on Democratic campaigns and, and even, even campaigns, um, you know, in Democratic campaigns, even as he was polling for Democratic candidates. Um, you know, it's uh, part of Ben's, uh, as I mentioned, his forthcoming book, uh, not to not to plug it too hard here on on the show, Bill, but um, you know, it was a is a fascinating read into you know the kind of person that I think you know reporters deal with a lot, but doesn't necessarily come to to light for for the public. Uh, you know, I mean, Sean and I have have spoken often, um, as I I think most political reporters in, in DC can attest to. Um, you know, and it was a fascinating look, and I'm sure it's going to be a, a fascinating book uh, from uh, from Ben. All right. Plug, plugs always welcome on the Bill Press pod. We will t- we'll be looking for that. Uh, and Hunter, of all the things you've been uh, thinking about this week, what stopped you in your tracks? So, you know, I'm going to pivot because I spent way too much time like reading about like all these horrible media layoffs. And, and, uh-huh. and as everyone can hear, I'm quite worked up about it. But I, I did read a great review in The New Yorker um, for the new documentary, I Am Everything which focuses hmm. on little Richard um, oh, and honey, Hanif Abdurraqib, you know, uh, definitely made me want to watch this documentary first off, but he was, you know, sort of looking at little Richard as someone who both never got his due, despite, you know, being one of the key, you know, inventors and stylists of early rock music. Um, and also something of a queer icon, um, you know, and I think it's, it, it's, I, I actually had the privilege of surprise seeing Little Richard play a false set one night in like oh. 2008. It was incredible. Um, and I think, you know, we've been overdue for a little bit of an appraisal of him um, just because he was such a pioneer. Um, and he went through so much in his life, you know, sort of playing on the Chitlin circuit um, and being, you know, someone who mm. certainly broke away from gender norms um he actually yep. would say in like the 80s that he had been gay he said he said he changed but you know he was nearly an out gay performer you know 40 years ago um in a space where he'd already faced adversity um so it made me want to immediately buy a ticket to this show which uh, this movie which is out in theaters now um and it also uh made me throw on a lot of little richard this week um oh, which was yeah great. I'm glad you mentioned. I hadn't seen that review, but I am a huge, have always been a huge Little Richard fan. And someday over a drink, I will tell you the story of my encounter with Little Richard. I met him on a few occasions, but one encounter with Little Richard and Robert Novak. 
<clears throat> oh uh, my god! Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. you're gonna get me. You're gonna get me on Amtrak, man. <laughs> Trying to stay out of DC. What are you doing? To me? <laughs> All right. Well, let me tell you my favorite story of the week. Uh, I think Jeannie Moose. He's always. She's always been one of my favorite reporters at CNN. She comes up with the greatest stories. And you know, there are cat people and there are dog people. I'm a cat person. <laughs> so I was really struck by the story she did this week about a cat named Patches. Patches is the biggest ever cat turned into a, um, a, a, a animal shelter in Richmond, Virginia. Patches weighing 40 pounds, 40 pounds. The um, uh, shelter put uh, him up for adoption uh, with the uh, description as the cat was gloriously gluttonous. <laughs> and Patches has now been adopted by a, a woman named Pat in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, and their goal is to go on a weight loss program together. So <laughs> it's this woman and the cat who are on their weight loss program. They The first time they went back to the vet after they started, Patches is now down to 38.8 pounds. Um, so remember that old song, what's up, pussycat? Um, <laughs> well, or what's new, pussycat? Uh, maybe someday when they ask Patches, what's new, pussycat? Patches can say, I'm down to 20 pounds. That's the goal, to get down to 20 pounds. Uh, check it out on CNN, the pictures of that cat. I cannot believe how big it is. And with that, we uh, say thank you again to our panel from McClatchy Newspapers, Alex Rorty, from NBC News Digital, Alan Smith, from Talking Points Memo, Hunter Walker. Thanks to all of you for joining us as well. Have a great weekend. And remember, we'll be back on Tuesday with the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. We'll see you then. Have a great weekend. Thanks, everybody. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.